You're listening to For the Record with Tess Hurd. I'm Tess Hurd, and this is For the Record. Everybody, and welcome back to another episode of For the Record with Tess Heard. I'm Tess Heard, and this is For the Record. I hope that you all are having an incredible week and an even more incredible Friday, or whatever day it is that you're listening to this on. Maybe you prefer your true crime on a Thursday night after the kids go to bed and while the husband is playing Xbox, or while the wife is washing your dishes that you left in the sink for the hundredth time. She's probably thinking of ways that she could murder you, but she just can't do it because she loves you too much. Or maybe you prefer your true crimes on a random Tuesday afternoon. Either way, I'm just glad you're here, and thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. First and foremost, I have to give a huge shout out to the Prosecutors Podcast. I want to congratulate you, Brett and Alice, on your Clue Award Everybody give Brett and Alice a round of applause. If I knew how to insert sound into my podcast, I would absolutely do one of those like, yay, TikTok kind of sounds, but I don't know how to do that. So just know that I'm giving you guys a huge round of applause in my heart right now. But I want to thank you guys so much for mentioning me on your Twitter, or I guess now it's X you guys that meant so much to me you have no idea I literally woke up at like six o'clock this morning to that and I just laid in bed in shock and all like visibly shaking trying not to wake up my husband because I know that he wouldn't be as happy as I was because he was still asleep but thank you guys so much you both are so amazing. I look up to you both. I respect you both. Y'all are just absolutely incredible. Not just because you shouted me out, but because of everything you do. Your podcast is phenomenal. You two are phenomenal human beings. Just so much love from your neighbors in Tennessee. Also, I want to shout out the gallery, the Facebook fan group for the prosecutors. If you are from the gallery and you are listening to this today, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for giving me a chance. Thank you for letting me be the podcast that you listen to whenever you find yourself listening to this. Y'all showed me so much love and support. It has been unreal I am just blown away at the love and kindness that you all have given me already. And I mean, literally at the point of recording this, it's only been like 12 hours. So y'all are just, y'all are the best. And I am sending so much love to you right now. Last but definitely not least, I want to give a shout out to Nicole. 
and her podcast, The Unsolved Vanishing People of the World. She takes unsolved cases of people who have literally just up and vanished and is trying to bring awareness and bring some light to their cases and is trying to help families find answers. Her podcast is available on iTunes and on Spotify. If you would like to check out her podcast on Spotify specifically, then you can click the link that will be provided in the show notes below. This podcast is relatively new. She just started it earlier this month, but I really like what she's doing. I think that she is going to have great success with it. So if you guys could please go and also show her some big love because she absolutely deserves it. You go girl. You continue to do your thing. You are awesome. And I followed, subscribed, left you a five-star review. You're going to go big. I believe in you. Okay, so usually I don't have this much kind of small talk and stuff. I try to, I did that in the beginning and I didn't like it. So I tried to just do my little introduction, my little quip about Random Tuesdays, and then get straight into the case. However, there is a lot to be said today. And as you can tell, I'm still kind of writing that, uh, holy crap, the prosecutor's podcast like acknowledged me. So I'm like still on that high, but yeah. And I also discovered whenever I sat down to record this that I am somehow missing three days worth of stuff for this episode. So I do greatly, greatly, greatly apologize for not being able to bring you guys a full week worth of coverage on this. So what I'm going to do instead is give kind of an introduction to what we're going to be talking about, talk about the case, and then talk a little bit about the trial uh, for days one and two. And then next week, it will be like seven or eight days worth of coverage. And I will try to have it all condensed and nice and pretty for you guys next week. So bear with me. I've never covered a trial before. I don't know exactly how to do all this. And I don't know if I'm going to do it well. So here's hoping. Fingers crossed. Prayers up. Let's go. As I'm sure many of you have heard about, and if you haven't, then you're about to, the Take Care of Maya documentary that premiered on Netflix earlier this year. Maya Kowalski is a now 17-year-old girl who was diagnosed with a very rare condition called Complex Regional Pain Syndrome, or CPRS. This is a debilitating, excruciating disease that causes horrific, horrific pain in the body. While the pain isn't always consistent at high levels, there is usually almost always pain involved and the flare-ups that can occur can be absolutely just it's called the the suicide disease because so many people cannot either be properly diagnosed with it or find a treatment that works for them and they end up 
taking their life because of how painful it is and how I mean imagine living in constant pain 24 hours a day like the most excruciating pain imaginable I will go ahead and say this on today's trial uh today's trial day the doctor who was testifying said that on a they had this specific scale and next week I will have the all of the actual information and everything about this scale but it goes from 1 to 50 1 being the least painful 50 being the most painful the highest level that they have on the pain scale right now is complex regional pain syndrome and that is at number 46 he said there's nothing above that I don't know why they don't top it at 46 then but maybe they're just waiting for more things to become even more painful I mean you never know but he said that this type of pain is more excruciating than labor pains or you know having a limb amputated or something like that so knowing that this little girl is suffering this kind of pain you know that's horrible for her and her family and it took quite a while for anyone to really find out that Maya had CPRS because not only is it a rare condition in itself it's even more rare in pediatric patients so what might have been able to be diagnosed a little bit more quickly as an adult took a very long time for Maya to be diagnosed with it at you know 11 or 12 years old Maya was able to come up with a treatment plan though that was for the most part working for her she was doing different types of therapies she was taking certain medications specifically the drug ketamine I had never really heard about ketamine until I watched take care of Maya and then started watching the trial but apparently ketamine is a pretty universal drug it can be used for a lot of different things and it is relatively safe especially when done under the right circumstances so it is a pain reliever it can be a sedative they can use it as an anesthetic they can use it if someone is having a very severe asthma attack and they need something more than just an EpiPen, they can give them a dose of ketamine and that will help loosen up and open up the airways. If a person is in shock after being in some sort of accident, it can help lower or it can help open the airways and help them breathe and also lower the blood pressure so that, you know, they come out of that shock, shocked state. And apparently, even EMTs carry around ketamine so that in a really bad situation, if it's needed, they can give the patient a dose of ketamine to help get them to where they can be transported to the hospital or treated the way that they need to be treated more efficiently and effectively and potentially save their lives. But with Maya, she was on an extremely high dose of ketamine. I think somewhere between 1200 and 1500 milligrams a day. 
that's a lot of ketamine. And even with all of that ketamine in her system, she still was having pain, especially whenever she was having one of her flare-ups. It would be the night of, I believe, October 10th, 2018, whenever Hurricane Michael hit Mexico City in Florida. Not Mexico City, Mexico Beach. Y'all feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I don't remember exactly, but Maya had a horrible, horrible flare-up that night and had to be taken to the hospital. Because of how much pain she was in and because of the CPRS, she could not be physically touched to have an examination. And her mother, Beata, knew that. And her mother was trying to tell the doctors and the nurses, look, she has this disease. This is what she needs. This is how much of it she needs that's going to help calm her down so that you can do your examination. But I'm just telling you, this is like she has the CPRS. She needs ketamine and she needs this much of it. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do what you need to do. And immediately... The doctors thought that this was a red flag. Even though Maya had been brought into the same hospital several times before because of the same thing. They had even given her ketamine treatments before, if I'm not mistaken. So whenever these red flags were raised, everyone was like, what are, what's, what's the deal here? But they ended up coming to a compromise and they gave Maya a small dose of ketamine, which did help ease her pain a little bit and then they gave her a different sedative and then they were able to do their examination and so on and so forth. But Maya was still in the hospital for several days. During this time frame, more and more red flags would be raised about Beata and at some point during these three or four days, CPS was called Child Protective Services. Whenever Child Protective Services was called, they accused Beata of abusing Maya and having the disorder Munchausen by proxy. If you don't know what Munchausen by proxy is, simply put, it is a disorder that some people have where they will cause harm and illness on usually their child for sympathy or attention or in the case of Gypsy Rose Blanchard it was those things plus the financial benefit of the attention and the sympathy from having a chronically ill child. Now Beata was a certified infusion nurse. She knew her medical stuff she did home health care with the infusion nursing. So she would go to people's houses and she would help do their infusion sites and everything. And this had actually proven to be extremely beneficial with Maya and what she had to do and how she had to treat her CPRS. But regardless of Beata's background, CPS decided that it would be best for Maya if she was taken out of the custody of her parents and placed in the custody of the Child Protective Services. This was catastrophic 
in so many ways. Not only was Maya taken out of the custody of her parents, she was basically imprisoned in the hospital for a total of 86 days, almost three months. She was not able to see her mother at all. It took quite a while for her to be able to see her father. She was not able to have phone calls with her mother unless if they were supervised. And even when they were supervised, if the conversation started to go any which way about Maya's health or her treatment, the person supervising the call would be like, okay, time to go. We got to go cut the call, cut the line. And that was that. So it was detrimental on Beata being separated from her chronically ill daughter who she knew was in pain. Maya was stuck in the hospital without her family, without being able to talk to her mom, without being able to hug her or see her, to see her dad often, to see her brother. And they also had completely stopped doing the ketamine treatments. And they thought that Maya was faking all of this pain. It's just mind-boggling and absolutely heartbreaking. So, of course, Maya's family was doing everything that they could to get Maya back. They hired attorneys and lawyers and they were going to court. They were trying to do everything that they could that was in their power. And at one point, it was looking like there just wasn't a good way to get Maya home. And because of this, because of the emotional turmoil that this put Beata in, because of the, really the only way for Maya to come home was if Beata was not in the picture anymore. While Jack, Maya's dad, and Kyle, Maya's brother, went to a birthday party of a neighbor's house one Saturday morning. Beata took herself to the family's garage with several belts, looped them together, stood on a stand, tied the belts around the banister in the garage, wrapped it around her neck, kicked out the stand, and took her own life. Jack and Kyle would come home later that day, and Beata had told Jack beforehand that she had a headache, so she was just going to stay home and lie down. And so whenever Kyle and Jack came home and the bedroom door was closed, they assumed that it was just, she was just sleeping, sleeping off her headache. It wouldn't be until a while later that... Jack would go into the garage to find his wife hanging from the, the, it's not the banister, but you know what I mean, the part of the garage that opens the garage door, the railing thing. Even after Beata took her own life, Maya was still not released out of the hospital until eight days later. Eight days she had to be in that hospital knowing that her mother had taken her own life, knowing her mother was gone and she was never going to see her again. 
eight days separated from her grieving father and brother. Eight days of grieving by herself in her own, like, in her own prison. Eight days. Can you believe that? Separated from your family for eight days. Knowing that the, I mean, how, she lost her mother. The last time that she saw her mother, she had no idea that that was going to be the last time that she saw her mother. Can you imagine how she felt? Can you imagine? I mean, I have a chronic illness, and if you listen to the My Life is Not for Profit episode, then you know how I feel. You know that I have, like, guilt. I call it the diabetic guilt. Can you imagine what Maya would have felt, especially knowing that if if she could have just been home, then none of this would have happened. At first, the Kowalski family had decided to sue the Child Protective Services. But according to a Google article that I read several days ago, if they wanted to pursue the lawsuit against John Hopkins All Children's Hospital, which is the hospital that Maya was imprisoned at, then they had to drop the lawsuit against Child Protective Services. Now, I don't know how true that is. If you do know that, then please feel free to let me know. I would love to hear what the actual reasoning is behind that, if that is not the actual reasoning. The Take Care of Maya trial started on September 21st of 2023. So at the time of this recording, that was last Thursday. On trial day one, the judge gave both the prosecution and the defense 90 minutes for their opening statements. Now, I will say right off the bat, I tried to ignore the judge's hair, but if you are watching this trial, can someone please explain to me what is going on with his head? He has like this little fluff ball right on top and the rest of it is like balding away. How come he just won't take off that little fuzz ball? Because that is absolutely driving me crazy. Okay, I wasn't going to mention that, but I figured maybe that would give somebody a laugh. And we all need a little humor to get through the rough times, right? And this is a very rough case, so I hope that at least made you chuckle. Back on topic. Mr. Anderson, the prosecuting attorney, opened up by talking about, of course, Maya and what she went through and her complex regional pain syndrome and how crazy of a disease that it is. He talked about the experience that she had at John Hopkins All Children's Hospital he talked about the false imprisonment that they put Maya in, the battery, the emotional torment, the, the mal- medical malpractice, the fraud, everything. And it was just, it was crazy. It was so crazy. So much of what he talked about I did not know about just after watching the documentary. And that's coming from the Kowalski family. So there's a lot more that we probably didn't see that 
probably will come out in this trial. But he also talked about Beata. Beata was born in Poland and she made her way to America whenever she was young. She decided that she wanted to become a nurse and she went to school and she was able to become a nurse. Then a little bit later she wanted to further her education and further her career and ultimately became a licensed in-home infusion nurse and was able to go to people's homes and help them put in infusion sites and help them take care of their infusion sites. And what she did career-wise actually was really beneficial for dealing with Maya and her, her illness and all of her hospital stays and everything. They also told a story about Beata's son, Kyle, and how whenever he was first born, he had some sort of something, I don't recall the name of it, but basically he had low blood counts, I believe, and since she had just given birth, she could not give blood. So she checked herself out of the hospital, went to a hospital somewhere nearby, went into that hospital, donated blood, collected the blood, went back to the hospital where she just had her son, and they were able to transfuse Kyle with her blood because they had the same blood type. It was her blood that they needed. And ever since then, Kyle has been totally fine. So Beata obviously very, very, very much cared about her kids. And this whole Munchausen by proxy thing is just ridiculous. And I really think that's the point that they were trying to make in telling that story. Like, why would this mother, who you say is purposefully making her child sick, literally risk her life by checking herself out of the hospital, like, hours after giving birth, to donate blood to give to her child? That just, that would not make any sense if she was intentionally trying to cause harm to Maya or Kyle. The prosecuting team, I do have to say, they were scattered the first couple of days of the trial. They, it seemed like everybody really was just a mess. They didn't have everything sorted out. They didn't know what, what items were what. They didn't know what evidence was what. They just were kind of all over the place with it. And at one point, the judge was like, okay, listen, you're going to bring me a piece of paper with all of the pieces of evidence that you agree on and all of the pieces of evidence that you don't agree on. So we're not spending all this time before court even starts working out stuff that you two should have figured out months ago. So far, I'm really liking this judge, minus his hair. But the defense came in with their opening statements, and they talked, again, a lot about the hospital and about Maya and the case and her treatment and Beata and why things went the way that they did and why the hospital acted in such a way and why, you know, 
it's not like their fault and this that and the other and blah 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 but they actually brought up one specific point that at the time it kind of had me a little bit worried but after today's trial which I will cover next week after today's session I am not so worried about it but he did say that before Maya was taken out of the custody of her parents they had the option to take her home and through another clinic do outpatient therapy or outpatient pain management therapy through this other clinic and they denied that whenever I first heard that I was like oh snap okay what's going on here but I promise I will drop that big bomb next week I don't mean to leave that as a cliffhanger but like I said I am somehow I watched trial days one two I thought that I was catching up yesterday on day three turns out it was day five or something I don't even know somehow or another I have gotten completely lost and I have trial days one and two that I can talk about so after both parties made their opening statements court was dismissed for the day of course day two started out with witnesses and there were a lot of witnesses but the first one being a neighbor of the Kowalskis Mr. Brandon Woodward he met the Kowalskis literally within days of them moving into their house in the subdivision that they lived in in Venice and they their families became almost instant friends they both had kids although Brandon's kids were much younger than Maya and Kyle they still did a lot of things together their families were you know always running into each other always going on walks together always going to dinner together and things like that so it was a really good indication of the type of family that the Kowalskis were and he really talked about how you know Maya was in her wheelchair sometimes but she wasn't she had more upper body strength than lower body strength she would be in excruciating pain sometimes but she would be you know okay sometimes and talked about how like what kind of mother Beata was what kind of father Jack was and just gave a really good picture of the family as a whole the next witness was Jack's brother Robert Robert has a history of working in law enforcement specifically with the child abuse cases I don't exactly remember how it was worded but he did work with children who were abused he finally got to where it was just too much on him mentally and emotionally understandable but at the same time we need more people out there watching out for these kids anyways so he had a good like legal background I guess in the sense of what to look for in child abuse and he was able to just really highlight 
the lack of evidence that he could see in the Kowalski's home. He also told a story about how whenever Maya went for one of her ketamine treatments, she had to go to Mexico to get it done. And this family that he was, he was a airline upholstery man, the uncle was, and the plane that he was working on was owned by a family and the family just happened to be, they either lived in Mexico or they went there a lot to like the same city where Maya was going to get her treatment. And so this family just completely took care of Maya and her family while they were there in Mexico getting this ketamine treatment. And they even bought her a humongous stuffed teddy bear. It was so big that they weren't able to put it on the airplane ride back to Florida. And so whenever this family that had got her the teddy bear came back to Florida, they brought the teddy bear with them and surprised Maya with it all over again. So that was just a really sweet story. And it really just showed the the sweetness of, you know, even though some of these situations have been like really bad for Maya, they've also had a lot of really, really sweet moments for her as well. After Robert was on the stand, they brought up Maya's brother, Kyle. Kyle mostly just talked about his memories of being a kid growing up with Maya, what life was like with her, what kind of relationship his parents had, how he told the story again about how whenever he was born, he was sick, and his mom went and donated blood and then got it and took it back to him and everything, and really just talked about how relatively good their childhood was. They had a really loving home. They had really loving parents. They were just really well taken care of, and there really wasn't much else that went on. He did talk about how he was, you know, worried sometimes about Maya, not knowing if she was going to be okay or not, and he talked about how whenever she started getting these ketamine treatments, how big of an impact it had on her, how much it changed her, how different of a person she was whenever she started to be able to function more like a normal human being, not in this constant state of complete debilitating pain. Then they called up one of Maya's teachers. She was a gifted teacher, meaning she taught the gifted class, the, I guess, kind of like genius level kids at one of the schools in the Venice area. Maya had actually tested into this gifted program and she, if she would have been able to stay in the program, she would have been able to, she, this teacher was going to like recommend her to be made like one of the actual gifted students. I don't really remember exactly what it was 
one the, what it was exactly but basically what she was saying that Maya was is incredibly intelligent and she loved learning and she loved to 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 just dive into her schooling and she was really really good at it she also talked about how much she loved doing arts and crafts and how that was one of her favorite things and she was a total girly girl with it and as I was listening to the trial I was actually working on some arts and crafts myself so I was like huh yeah I understand that completely so it was it, it, it was a fun little moment but then the teacher she started to talk about how whenever Maya started to get sick again having one of these flare-ups she was able to have the teacher come to her home and tutor her versus her having to go to school and someday she would go and Maya would be you know really aware and really interested in learning and wanting to do the work other days she would go and Maya would be laying in bed not able to get up and not really able to do much of anything and it was always a variation between what it was going to be like every day that she went whenever Maya was placed into the hospital and put into the care of CPS it was very difficult for the teacher to be able to continue to go and help her do her schooling she had brought a laptop at one point and was told that the teacher was told that Maya could not have the laptop that she was not allowed to take it into the room because Maya could not potentially have access to email to contact her parents it was also just very difficult even for the teacher to be able to be allowed in to see her and she would always have to make it known like I am her teacher I am not a family member I am just her teacher they did not want anyone associated with Maya to come into the room to see her and it was like pulling teeth to be able to get these people in there there is even one of the family's church members who was bringing Maya a traveling Mary. I had never heard about this and I thought it was really cool. The Kowalski families are Catholic and the Catholics have something called a traveling Mary that is the mother Mary that they take to people who are in need, who are sick, or, or who are just needing extra prayer. And they take this Mother Mary to these families, and they go through this whole little, like, prayer ceremony. There's a book of prayers that they go through and everything, and they leave it with them until either someone else needs it or the family who it was left with doesn't need it anymore and I just thought that was really cool I'm not Catholic but I'd, I just I really liked the idea of that I thought that was just a really cool little gesture and so the the sister and one of the other church members went to take the traveling Mary to Maya 
and they were told that they could not be there, that they could not pray with Maya, that they could not leave the traveling Mary with Maya, that they were not allowed to talk about any kind of religious anything or any kind of anything with Maya. And you would later find out that that's because the CPS workers thought that Beato was trying to brainwash and control Maya with religion, which is just crazy. Like, I'm sorry. That is just, it's crazy. I know that that happens. I'm not saying that it doesn't. But in this situation, this is just crazy. And it was heartbreaking. It was just absolutely heartbreaking. Maya needed that comfort. She needed that, that that source of of external comfort from her her religion, from her faith. And that's something that would have brought that to her. And she was not able to get that because of the CPS workers thinking that it was some sort of, you know, brainwashing or controlling. The family priest wasn't even able to go visit and pray with her because of the same reason. She couldn't have her rosary. She couldn't have anything that she would normally have. It was just so awful. They were denying her literally everything that would bring her any kind of comfort or solace. All right, since we are at the right at 40 minute mark on this episode, I am going to go ahead and cut it. I think that there is another half of the day two. I could be mistaken because like I said, I've gotten these days all kinds of mixed up. I'm about to just go and make like a whole playlist from Law and Crime to keep track of what I've watched and what I haven't. But if you are interested in following the trial with me, you can do so on the Law and Crime Network on YouTube or on their website and I will have a link to their YouTube channel and their website in the description below. Make sure to check out the Unsolved Vanishing People of the World on iTunes or on Spotify. If you haven't already, please be sure to hit that follow button or that subscribe button if you are on YouTube. If you're listening to the podcast on a streaming platform other than YouTube, make sure to leave a five-star review because, you know, that really helps your girl out. You can connect with us on Facebook at For the Record with Tess Hurd. I am also on X, formerly known as Twitter, at For the Record underscore TH. I believe that's the name of it, but I'll also have that link down below as well. You can email me if you have a case suggestion or a question about the case, or if you want to share information about the case, or you just want to say hi at fortherecordwithme at gmail.com. I know there's something else that I usually say at the end of these episodes, but tonight I'm still flying on cloud nine, so I can't remember what it is, but I hope that you guys have an incredible week. Next week, I promise I'm going to have this whole trial coverage thing a little more worked out. But until then, the record will so reflect.